The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning, Gospel City Church. It is great to see you again this morning. Uh, Lord willing, this will be the last time whenever I preach at Gospel City Church that it will be on Zoom. So Lord willing, in weeks to come, we'll be able to meet together in person again. Thank you once again for inviting me to come to Gospel City Church and share from God's Word. It's always a joy for me. So today we're going to look at a very interesting passage. Uh, last week, Massimo preached out of Genesis 22, and this week we are going to look at the very next passage. So whenever people think about the life of Abraham, they often think of last week's passage, the near sacrifice of Isaac. They also think about the various passages that refer to God's covenant with Abraham. Rarely do they think of our story today. Nevertheless, I think that this morning's passage plays an essential role in biblical history and biblical theology. I also think it can teach us something about how our God is the God who keeps promises. That's actually the title of today's message, The God Who Keeps Promises. And this morning, I want us to see in the story of Sarah's death and burial, how we can live in faith between the already and the not yet of God's promises. But before we can see these truths, we need to study our passage. So I hope you have your Bible. Open it up to Genesis 23. We will see that our passage this morning begins with a dead wife and a mourning husband. Let me read to us the first two verses of Genesis 23. It says in verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up. Oh, wait, that's verse 3. We're stopping at verse 2. So what we see in these first two verses is right there at the beginning. Sarah lived for 127 years. And then she died in Hebron. But notice what the verse says. It says specifically that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. And so it goes on to describe Abraham's emotional response to the death of his wife. He wept. He mourned. What we see here in these two verses is that Sarah is the first major character in Genesis to die in the promised land. Now, if you remember back, uh, back to chapter 18, Lot's wife also died in the promised land, but she didn't need a burial place. Uh, she did not have faith. She looked back to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord turned her into a pillar of salt. But what we see here is that we have a focus on Sarah's death. Why is there a focus on Sarah's death? Well, she is obviously a woman who deserves to be honored. 
She is a woman of faith. She has been portrayed as such by the by the chapters up to this point. And so she deserves an honorable burial. But how? The rest of our chapter deals with this problem. You see, Abraham has nowhere to bury Sarah. Now, I want us to see here in these verses that Sarah lived a good, long life. 127 years, not bad. Now, Abraham lived longer. He died at 175 years of age. Their son Isaac outlived both of them. He lived for 180 years. Their grandson Jacob died at the young age of 147 years old. And what's really wild, if you ever look at those charts that show how long all of the ancestors, our ancestors in Genesis lived, Shem, who was the son of Noah, and is like the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham, Shem was still alive whenever Sarah died, according to the biblical dates. Now, why do we know all of this? We know all of this because the Bible tells us how old each of these individuals were. The reason the Bible tells us their age is it wants us to see that they lived a long, good, and blessed life. It's a sign of God's blessing that they lived to such a long age. But what about the other women in Genesis? Have you ever thought about this? We see that Sarah died at 127 years old. But there's not much said about the other women. Rachel, she died in childbirth. But the Bible doesn't give her age. She died whenever Benjamin was born. The Bible says that Jacob's other wife, Leah, that she was buried, but it doesn't say how old she was. The same is true of Rebecca, Isaac's wife. It says she was buried, but we don't know how old she was. In other words, what we see here in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 23 is that the Bible speaks of Sarah's death. It emphasizes it to show us that she is honored. It says how long she lived. It says where she died. It says that Abraham, the great man of faith, the great patriarch, he mourned her death with great weeping. And then for the rest of this chapter, it has an elaborate passage to describe just how and where she is buried. And that is what, what um, provides the content for our next section of Genesis 23 the acquisition of the place for her burial. Because in verses 1 and 2, Sarah dies, but they don't have anywhere to bury her. So in verses 3, to, through, to thir uh, three through to 15, uh, we see a negotiation for land where she can be buried. Let me read to us verses 3 through to 15. Beginning in verse 3, And Abraham rose up, from before his dead, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. 
none of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohor, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in and in at the gate of his city. Verse 11, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, or I'm sorry, uh, Yeah, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham needed a burial plot for his... Uh, family, but he must negotiate to acquire one. And that's what we see here with this intricate back and forth. Now the dialogue consumes, this dialogue back and forth consumes much of the chapter. And it shows us the subtleties of ancient negotiations. So notice first, Abraham approaches all of the Hittites to make a request to the group in verses three and four. Now in verses five and six, they show him great respect and honor. Notice how they refer to Abraham as a prince of God. Now there's nothing particularly spiritual about this title. It's just a title of honor to show that they respect Abraham who is a sojourner in their midst. Why would they honor him so much? Well, we see back in Genesis 14 that even though Abraham's family were sojourners, they had a good amount of wealth and even a small military to help out the local nation states whenever they went to battle. But our passage doesn't say why exactly the Hittites honor Abraham here. It might be because of one of these former events or situations or it might be something else that the Bible doesn't tell us about. So Abraham responds to them and says he wants to purchase a specific plot of land, specifically the cave at the end of Ephron the Hittite's field. Once again, the Bible isn't interested in giving us the details for why Abraham wanted this particular piece of land. Maybe it was because of the cave. Maybe it was because of some past experience at that location. But the Bible doesn't say. And that's okay. You know, too often we try to ask questions of the Bible that the Bible doesn't 
particularly have any interest in answering for us. And so we can open up commentaries and we can see this speculation or that speculation. But ultimately, where the Bible is silent, God didn't want us to know the answer. And that's okay. And so the Bible doesn't give us the reason. It just says that Abraham wanted this piece of land. And so in verses 10 and 11, Ephraim the Hittite, he wants to honor Abraham. He says, let me give it to you as a gift. But Abraham replies, once again, bowing before the Hittites. And he says, no, let me pay for the field. So finally, Ephraim the Hittite says, you know, what's 400 shekels between friends? And this is the way that they agree upon the price for the field. Now we have some good archaeological evidence from the second millennium BC, you know, some 3000 over years ago, which shows us that the price of a field in the ancient Near East was about 400 shekels. So this fits the time and the place. But what I don't want us to miss here are a number of implicit aspects of this negotiation that make all the difference to the narrative. Here's the first piece. A foreigner, a sojourner, as Abraham refers to himself, can't purchase landed property. Countries have rules for who can and cannot purchase property. I'm on Malaysia, my second home visa here in Malaysia. That means that there are certain rules for the prices of properties that I'm allowed to purchase. I'm allowed to purchase at maximum two properties. Of course, I don't have the money to buy one property, but I could purchase up to two properties. If I didn't have Malaysia, my second home visa, there are other rules for what land I could purchase here in Malaysia because I'm a foreigner. Now, this is normal across countries today, and it was normal in the ancient Near East as well. If you were a foreigner, you couldn't just walk into an area, buy land, with, and buy land without the permission of the local authorities. And so that's what's happening in our story. A sojourner living in the ancient Near East, Abraham, is seeking permission to own or to purchase some land. This is moving him from a position of an outsider to being something more of a local. Why do I say that? Well, whenever you owned this type of landed property, it became inheritable. You could pass it on to your children and to their children in perpetuity. Thus, this purchase gave Abraham a permanent possession in the promised land. But one more thing before we move on to the final few verses. It's worth noting this complex interplay back and forth. You know, Abraham bows. They honor him with special titles back and forth and back and forth. And it makes us think back in our mind to the great promise to Abraham that whoever curses him will be cursed, but whoever blesses him will be blessed. And so we see here the mutual blessing between Abraham and the Hittites. 
Now, we could spend much more time looking at the complexities of these negotiations, but let's continue to look at the end of the story because I think it will help us to make sense of the entire chapter. You see, the final few verses focus on Sarah actually being buried in the promised land. Let me read to us verses 16 through to the end of the chapter. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the mer merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So what we see here is that Sarah becomes the first member of Abraham's family to be buried in the promised land. This narrative concludes with a description of the purpose, of, of the purchase. Abraham pays for the land, and notice that it emphasizes the land includes the cave, but also the field, and that these things are deeded over to Abraham. We see that in verses 17 and 18, and then, of course, verse 20. The narrative wants us to see that this is more than just a burial cave. Notice it's not just the, the cave, but the field. It even emphasizes all of the trees in the field. The phrase that says throughout its whole area in the ESV, which I just read, uh, can also be translated within all of its borders. That's actually a closer translation to the words that are there in Hebrew. In other words, this is more than a cave. It's a field with borders, trees, and land. The narrative ends with Abraham burying Sarah in the cave in the land of Canaan, verse 19. Now we saw in verse 2, it emphasized that she died in the land of Canaan. And here at the end of the chapter in verse 19, it says that she is buried in the land of Canaan. Location matters to this story. Notice how the narrative emphasizes the location of the burial plot, its surrounding, its contents, its proximity to Hebron, its place in Canaan. Location matters. The location is also emphasized by the lack of what we would expect here. We would expect it to describe the ritual of burying Sarah. If you go to the end of Genesis, to chapter 50, the first 14 verses of chapter 50 focus on the burial rituals of Jacob. 
But her ritual isn't even mentioned here. It just says that she was buried. The location gets more focus than even the event of her burial. So these are the details of chapter 23. But to understand this chapter better and to see why it's so important, we need to ask a bigger question. What is this passage doing in our Bible? To figure out what this passage is doing, we need to think about this passage within the bigger picture of what, a what God is doing through Abraham in Genesis. First, God's promises to Abraham have set the stage for this moment. You see, in Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord said to Abram, To your offspring, I will give this land. The word land didn't have some generic meaning of someplace somewhere. You see, in Genesis 15, verse 7, God said, I brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In other words, the land promised to Abraham wasn't in Ur. That's not the land. The land is in Canaan, where he now dwelt. It was this place, not that place. In chapter 15, verse 18, the Lord further specifies what this land looks like. It has borders from the Nile to the Euphrates. He specifies the people groups who are living in this land. In Genesis, we know of various other people groups that aren't mentioned among these people groups. It is this area where these people are living. In other words, the promised land wasn't a generic piece of real estate like, I will give you whatever place you decide upon which works best for your family. No, it was a piece of actual real estate that had an address. You see, this promise couldn't be fulfilled in Abraham's descendants by giving them, you know, a place in Egypt or the U.S. or even Malaysia. It had to be in Canaan. And so in chapter 17, verse 8, more definition is given to this promise. God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, and catch this, for an everlasting possession, an eternal property. In other words, he says here, the promised land is the land of Canaan, and he's not just going to give them this land for a short period of time, but for an everlasting possession. Now, I want you to listen. I'm going to say the Hebrew phrase here, okay? It's la'achuzat olam. La'achuzat olam. Everlasting possession. I want to emphasize that word, achuzat, because it appears in Genesis 23. The first time that this phrase, eternal possession, 
eternal property, Ahuzat Olam, appears is in Genesis 17. And it doesn't appear again until Genesis 23. And that word for property appears three times in our passage. Now, whenever Genesis 23 begins, how old is Sarah? Look at the first verse. She's 127 years old. This means that Abraham is now 136 years old. It's been 37 years since God had promised him this land as an eternal property. It's been 52 years since God first promised him a landed property at all back in Genesis 12. And through this whole time, Abraham has trusted God's promise without seeing it come to fruition at all. But in chapter 23, that begins to change. In verse 4, Abraham says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me a chuzat, property among you for a burying place. In verse 9, Abraham says, for the full price, let him give it to me in your, in your presence as a chuzat, property for a burying place. And then in verse 20, the last verse of chapter 23, it says the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a chuzat, property for a burying place by the Hittites. In other words, chapter 23 is a chapter about a chuzat, landed property. And whenever we add to this verse 2 and verse 19, which put a frame around the chapter to emphasize that this property is in the land of Canaan. Whenever we see this frame, we realize this chapter is an example of God keeping his promises. Our passage shows Abraham's first acquisition of landed property from the Hittites. Back in chapter 15, verse 18, the Hittites were one of the people groups listed from among whom God would give this land to Abraham. And so in our passage, Abraham acquires his first land in the promised land from the Hittites. And so what we see is Abraham receiving the first fruits of God's promise. God has been faithful to his promise. He's beginning to bring about its fulfillment, even if he doesn't completely fulfill it at this time. You see, Abraham is going to die. And whenever Abraham dies, this is the only property in Canaan that belongs to him. He will be buried alongside Sarah, his wife. Their son, Isaac, will acquire no more land. His wife, Rebecca, and he will both be buried in this cave. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, will acquire a little more land, but nothing like the promises made to Abraham. 
when Jacob's first wife, Leah, dies, she will be buried in this cave. Now, as you know, from the end of Genesis, Jacob's sons will emigrate to Egypt for 400 years. But Jacob will insist that even if he dies in Egypt, his sons must bury him in the same cave with Leah, his parents, and his grandparents. Why? Because their burials are an act of faith in God's promise. They are examples of living in faith between the already and the not yet. God has already begun to give them the promised land by giving them this burial cave, but God has not yet given them the entirety of the promised land as an eternal possession. You see, the already not yet nature of God's work is true for all of, Abra all of the promises to Abraham. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Even though he has a small military, he has some leadership, they are not yet a great nation. That wouldn't happen for another 800 years. God promised that kings would be born to Abraham, but that wouldn't happen for another 800 years. God promised him numerous descendants, like the stars of the sky or the sands on the seashore. Now, Abraham had a couple of sons. Uh, they had a couple of children. But by the end of the book of Genesis, the family only has about 70 people. It's not for 400 years until the beginning of Deuteronomy that we see that God has fulfilled the promise to give him numerous descendants. And of course, God promised to give him all of the land of Canaan. This came closer to reality 800 years later under Solomon, but to this day, it has not reached the full extent of the borders that were mentioned in Genesis. But last week, Massimo shared what I believe to be one of the most important promises to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 18. God swears to Abraham and says, in his descendant, in Abraham's singular individual descendant, in his descendant, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abraham had descendants who blessed certain people and had small-scale blessing, but it wasn't until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, died to defeat sin, rose to justify sinners, and saved his people from their sins. It's not until Jesus came that he truly brought blessing to all nations. And so whenever Abraham died, Abraham died in faith, living between the already and the not yet of God's promises. So let me ask it again. Why is this passage in the Bible? Think about it this way. Abraham didn't need to hear this story. His kids probably heard it directly from him. So why did they pass it on for hundreds of years until it was written down in the Bible? 
It wasn't preserved for mere trivia, but it was preserved to teach God's people something about God. Let me suggest that this story is in the Bible to help believers have faith in the already and not yet of God's promises. The story reminded Israel that God had already begun to fulfill promises to Abraham. Thus, they can have faith even though God had not yet brought about the complete fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And this is a situation that believers struggle with today as well. We are living between the already and the not yet. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus died and rose again some 2,000 over years ago. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on the earth as he promised. And yet, I wonder, why does God continue to allow suffering? I wonder why God allows individuals to suffer and die apart from saving faith in him. I wonder why God allows me to continue to live in a battle with personal sin, in a world filled with sinners, in a world filled with sinful systems of injustice. And so this passage reminds me that God is at work. It reminds me that God will be faithful to bring about the not yet of his promises because he has already done so many things for us. We live in a period of time that some people call the time between the times. You see, Jesus has already died for the sins of believers. Yet Jesus has not yet removed sin from believers' lives. Jesus has already defeated death on the cross. Yet he has not yet cast death into the lake of fire. He has already sealed our redemption, but we have not yet experienced the day of redemption. He has already declared us to be justified. But he has not yet, or we have not yet experienced the day of judgment. Jesus has already ascended to heaven to sit on David's throne. But Jesus has not yet returned to establish his kingdom on the earth. Many, many more examples could be given. The basic idea is that Jesus Christ, by his perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, has already secured all the blessings of God's promises. However, as God works out his plan in time, we have not yet received all of his promises. We have tastes. We have glimpses. We have foreshadowings. We know what God has done, and we have his spirit to remind us of the great things he has done. But we have not yet experienced the fullness of all his promises that we will experience whenever he comes again. And so this burial cave in Canaan 
reminded Israel of what God had done, but it also made them remember the promises of what God said he would do. It inspired them to live in faith. As Christians, we too live in faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, we have assurance because Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary to bring about ultimate victory over sin and death. And so we can have resolute faith that all of the promises of God will come to fruition in time because all of God's promises are yes in Christ. They are assured by him, even though many of them are still not yet. Abraham never saw the complete fulfillment of the promises made to him. And so he lived by faith. Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And through this long period of time, between promise, first fruits, and ultimate fulfillment, God still called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. God called Abraham's descendants in the nation of Israel to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And through it all, God still promised them a future and a hope. And so today, we, like Abraham, live in the time between times. We can live as those who have received the promises of the gospel, as those who have believed in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and as those who are living as agents of that gospel in our communities and relationships today. We can live by faith, having the assurances of what God has done and the joyful expectation of what he is going to do. So I hope that this morning we have seen in the story of Sarah's death and burial a glimpse of what it looks like to live between the times. I hope you have seen the faithfulness of God to provide the first fruits of his promises. And I hope that through this story, you are encouraged to live in faith between the already and the not yet of God's promises. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you are such a glorious God, that your plan takes place over centuries and millennia, that you work through countless people to bring about your plan of bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth through your Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that we live between the already and the not yet of the gospel. That already we can say that we are justified. We can already say that we are saved. We can already say that we are seated in the heavenlies. Even though we know that the day of judgment is still future. That the day of 
our ultimate sanctification and glorification are still future. And so now we live in the time between the times, having the assurances that we know in the gospel, but looking forward with expectant hope to the things that you are still going to do according to your plan in your time, the things that you have promised us to do. So Father, for your church today, I pray that through this passage in Genesis, that we might see a glimpse of what it looks like to live in faith between the already and the not yet. Help us to live confidently in those things that we know to be true with joyful expectation of all that you are going to bring about. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.